Welcome back to the Movement Fluidity Podcast. I have a special guest today, David Lasondek, who I was lucky enough to meet at the Fascia Congress in Montreal. So thanks for coming on, David. I'm really excited for this one. Charlie, I really appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here. So I guess let's start things off by your background information. I know what you've been up to recently, but I don't know much about how you got into this field. So I'd love to hear an explanation of that. Okay. Uh, well, I'll try to condense it as, as much as possible. But I started my career in the early 90s uh, in the massage and body work field with a clinical focus. So I was always interested in in not just helping people feel better, but actually helping them get better. And in the early 2000s, I discovered uh, fascia for myself. Obviously, I didn't discover fascia, you know, in the big picture, but I discovered fascia structural integration uh, approach to manual therapy, uh, Tom Myers and his anatomy trains models. And I just dove headlong into getting all of that education. And then I actually started uh, assisting at some of the anatomy trains weekends and in longer form trainings. Uh, it was through my association there that I met Robert Schleip. So for those of you who uh, that might be a new name to in the audience, uh, Robert Schleip was the first uh, Rolf structural integrator, uh, Rolf method of structural integration in Germany. And he eventually got a PhD in human biology and became one of our foremost researchers in the field of fascia. So as he likes to say, he transitioned from practitioner land to science land. And I first encountered him around 2006, uh, somewhere in the later part of that decade, early 2010. He invited me to come to Germany and videotape uh, their fascia summer school, which was the idea of the fascia research Congress, but a small version, like 50 people, 60 people, top tier scientists, body workers, and researchers, but very intimate. So you really could get to know these people, pick their brains, have them understand your concerns. And I spent the next six years uh, probably generating, including a, a dissection video uh, called Anatomy Trains Revealed, about 120, 140 hours of educational videos on the science and the anatomy of fascia. Mm -hmm. So that was... That was like my PhD program, which, uh, and so that's what gave me the insights to write the book. So that's the condensed version of the journey. Okay. And the book that he's referring to that I was lucky enough to get an early copy of is right here, uh, Fascia, what it is and why it matters. Uh, this is the second edition and it really goes in on a deep dive of fascia on a cellular level, and then all the way to the applied version. So it was really cool to see everything put together under one cover. So thank you for this. It, it was amazing. I can't explain how much I learned from this book. You're very welcome. You're, you're very welcome. It was my absolute pleasure to write it the first time and then to have the opportunity to do an updated version, which is the one that's available now. And uh, is this going to air before the end of the year? Yes. This podcast? Yes, it will. Okay, good. Because um, 
Good, because I want to give you uh, a link and a discount code so that all of your listeners who might be interested can get the book for 30% off, uh, which is an offer good till the end of the year. Oh, so great. Put Thank that you in so your much. show notes or whatever you want to do. Yeah, perfect. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's it's all about spreading the word. So what are you up to now? Are you uh, still practicing manual therapy? And uh, now that th this book is done, what is the next step? <laughs> well, you, you caught me between books, Charlie. Um, I'm still practicing manual therapy three days a week at the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center which is a great place to be. And that still really continues to inspire me. I've been uh, practicing in this way now for over two decades, and I'm still treating conditions and meeting people and hearing people say things to me that I've never heard before. So it, it keeps it fresh. It keeps me engaged. And I don't ever want to fully give that up, but things are changing a little bit. Uh, I'm, I think earlier on when we were talking before we hit record, I was telling Charlie that I was uh, remodeling my home office a little bit just to make it work a little bit better for me because I'm getting ready to start book number three. And this is going to be the book about fascia for everybody. So the, the book that Charlie just mentioned is really written for professionals, practitioners, movement people, everything from surgeons to yoga teachers. Uh, but this uh, next one that I'm working on is going to be the one that's really designed for the general public. And I'm really excited to be doing that. Uh, and um, that's going to occupy a lot of my 2023. And I'm hoping, I'm just starting to percolate on the idea of uh, doing some sort of fascia-oriented symposium here at the University of Pittsburgh in 2024 that's, like, incredibly nascent. And, of course, there's my own podcast, Body Talk, uh, which is available on all platforms, including this platform, Anchor, which you use. And, uh, you know, that, that should keep me busy for a while, I think, don't you? It sounds like it. Yes. And I also wanted to say thank you for putting out your podcast because hearing the, uh, hearing your intro on Anchor FM, um, really grabbed me in and realized that I could start my own. So you were a big reason in that. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's not often, uh... It's wonderful to see somebody look at what I'm doing and go, oh, you know what? I could do something like that. And and I could I could go after this niche in this audience that, that needs to be served. So that, that's wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. Exactly. Um, so when I met you at the conference, you were a very integrated part with Freya and um, up there with all of the, the up, most up-to-date research. If you could just give a quick explanation of what Freya is for the listeners and go into mm -hmm. a little bit about um, the direction that the, the research is headed in, uh, in fascia, that would be, that'd be great. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, what Charlie's referring to is actually Freya 
and Freya. no problem okay. people say Freya very a lot. Just so people say Fascia instead of Fascia. Right. So okay. no worries. But Freya is F R E I A, uh, which is the world's first full body fascia focused plastinate. So plastinations is a generic term for anatomical models that are made. And I apologize to the listeners for that. I don't know why that's still happening. Uh, anatomical models that uh, are made in a laboratory in Germany that use donated cadavers to make these models. Uh, the touring version of this is called Body Worlds. And some of you may be familiar with some of those exhibitions, but they show all different versions of human bodies doing the things that humans do when they're alive. And they're remarkable educational tools. They also make very specific anatomical tools for universities, for hospitals, and so on, for teaching. Uh, the body worlds thing is just kind of their public facing uh, out, output. And about four years ago, almost five now, uh, Robert Schleip and a number of people got together and with the folks at the Plastinarium to talk about how can we do something like this that really just focuses on the fascia and on the connective tissue. And that started a very long process uh, where a team of volunteers from the Fascia Research Society and people from the Plastinarium had to collaborate to produce what you saw in Freya, which stands for Fascia Revealed Educating Interconnected Anatomy. And originally, the idea of creating a fascia-only model of the body, uh, we weren't sure that it could even be done. And it turns out that, well, what we ideally wanted, which was some of the body world's exhibits include like, here's just the circulatory system, boom. Here's just the nervous system, boom. We wanted to do, here's just the fascial system, boom. But the problem was there wouldn't be anything to really support it. So the team realized quite quickly uh, that they were going to have to really rethink what they want to do. Because ideally, if you wanted, like, here's the superficial fascia, here's the deep fascia, here's uh, some of both. And I was actually personally not involved in that project, Charlie. I had serious FOMO going on, but it just wasn't practical for me to go over to Germany uh, three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time to devote to this. And then, of course, COVID happened, so nobody was traveling. Uh, but two of my very best friends, Rochelle Clausen and Gary Carter, were instrumental uh, in making this happen. Gary was one of the lead dissectors and the lead designer in the, the final uh, body that you got to see at the Fashion Congress. And they kept me very involved and very informed every step of the way. And then they invited me to help write the program that you got that was given out to everybody who went to the Fashion Congress. So uh, it was really great. And there's a, I actually interviewed them. I want to say it's like episode five or six of my podcast. Um, about that whole process. So what Freya is, and you can go to YouTube and I'll, I'll give you a link and put in the show notes. When they unveiled Freya for the world to see, Robert was there, Gary, Rochelle, uh, Dr. Angelina Wally from the Plastinarium. Uh, they did a live YouTube event uh, the day before Thanksgiving here in the United States 
uh, last year. And it's remarkable and it gives you a real nice up close look at what they were doing. Uh, they've kind of put further development of the Freya project on hold right now. Uh, but what's amazing is they made her and they made the proof of concept pieces. So for example, we have an IT band that is actually done in a way that you can see how it's really just a thickening of the entire curl fascia, the fascia that wraps around the leg and how it's invested by the gluteus maximus on one side and the tensor fasciolata on the other side. There is a beautifully rendered pericardium, uh, the fascial bag that goes around the heart and many other pieces. Uh, those are part of the permanent exhibit now at Body Worlds in Berlin, which is really quite an honor. And it's another thing that's moving the ball forward uh, in educating the public about this wonderful tissue and system that we call fascia. Well, I had never seen a, anything that had put it all together. And it, it makes perfect sense that you can't just have simply the fascia. And I think they did an incredible job with overlaying uh, the muscles and still getting able to see the superficial and deep fascia and uh, got lucky enough to see that also. And I will put a, uh, a link to that so anyone can check it out on YouTube uh, because it really does paint the mm -hmm. picture of more of what this fascial system does for a better understanding. Yeah. I'll also give you another link too for, uh, uh, it's called Otocast. It's a arts app that when you're traveling, you could say, well, what's going on uh, in this town? And it'll say, oh, here's these different art exhibits. The original uh, pop-up museum, as we call it, that we did in Berlin. And um, let say we, that was me, Rochelle, Gary, uh, Lori Nemitz, uh, Jahan and a few other people, uh, we made an exhibit out of those proof of concept pieces for the 2018 Berlin conference. And this, uh, app will walk you through step-by-step step all of the pieces and give you all of the details. So it's a real treasure trove for people who want to take a deeper dive into this. So I know that fascia is a relatively new, uh, topic in research. And a lot of what was at the Congress mm -hmm. was lower back pain and a biomechanical approach to fascia. I was wondering what you mm -hmm. think needs to be, what is the direction that needs to happen in fascia to make the biggest impact on this, any population with this topic? Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a really good question. The, the research, so it's interesting if you go back to the first fascia research congress which was 2007 and this most recent one was number four five six number seven so we've had seven in 15 years um they sent out 18 invitations to different people to speak and 16 of them said yes and usually when you're trying to put together a symposium, you're expecting a lot of people to say no. So what was interesting was there were a lot of outliers who were studying it. And the idea to be able to come together and collaborate and cross pollinate was just too delicious to pass up. So it's been, an, it, it's really starting. It's an idea that's been starting to gain traction. Um, 
my own mission. I, I don't know really what I can say about the direction research needs to go. Uh, I would like to see some more good clinical studies of fascial approaches to orthopedic issues like low back pain uh, or say thoracic outlet syndrome, which is a sometimes tingling uh, and sometimes numbness in the hands that usually comes from up here along the first and second ribs. The surgical intervention uh, to get rid of it is to take out the first rib. Um, in my experience, it works for a short time. It doesn't always last. Uh, because it's usually a fascial restriction that's causing that. And that's a slow thing that happens over time. So, you know, I'd love to be able to do some pilot studies like that, or I'd like to see somebody do some pilot studies like that. Um, my own particular mission is to get this work more highly recognized in the medical and healthcare spaces. That had a lot to do with why, when I had the opportunity to go work in a department that's adjacent to a hospital. Uh, I dove for it. That's a lot why I wrote the first book. Uh, that's a lot why I was asked to create and edit a healthcare textbook. And, and that's also why I am working on the third book to really, really make an impact on the general public because like it or not, um, there is a commerce aspect to healthcare and medicine in the United States. And if enough people demand something, the suppliers are gonna begin to um, look at how to meet that demand. Um, and I'm not being cynical when I say that, I, I'm just being realistic about the, the bean counting aspect of medicine. Uh, the practitioner aspect of it is again, an ongoing and evolving scenario. Um, I think from an insurance standpoint, if we can be able to say to uh, healthcare providers, insurance companies, look, I'm not going to make you money, but if you give me $2,000 and I can keep this person from needing a $20,000 operation, we're going to save you money. Uh, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that we need to be able to do to get this work more mainstreamed and, uh, and accessible to everybody which I think is, is a really, really worthy goal. So that's, that's what I'd like to see, Charlie, is some good pilot studies that are geared towards showing positive outcomes that could then be contrasted with a similar uh, sampling of people uh, who did PT, did surgery versus this person who got structural integration, this person who got some version of fascial release, this person who did rolling, those kinds of things would really be helpful. And what's really exciting is the NIH has just funded three or four different studies looking for how we can actually measure uh, the markers for myofascial pain, because there's a lot of people out there who still don't think it exists. You and I know differently. Right. Um, but in terms of being able to say, no, look, it's a, it's a real thing that we can measure. And, you know, it's not that science or medicine is, um, is the bad guy that we have to topple with our new paradigm. It's just that the, the essence of the science is being able to observe in measure and reproduce results. And that was the thing that really captured my imagination 
when I discovered the fascial approach to doing body work was like, oh, here is a systematic approach that I can actually reproduce results fairly reliably on a regular basis. And that's, that's what we're evolving towards in the fascia world. And, and that's where I think it needs to go. Well, I think your approach is what is definitely needed because it's been funny since I talked to people about fascia, since I've recently dove into this topic, there's some people who know a little bit about it. Some people very limited who know a lot about it. And then there's those people that have never even heard of the word fascia and, um, or they say, oh, isn't that something in my leg? And if they have, if the general population <laughs> could have a better understanding of what it does and why it could help them prevent a lot of these, um, these things like thoracic outlet syndrome and, and whatnot, um, I think it would save those big corporations money and people pain down the line. So really targeting the general population is a very smart way to approach it. Uh, thanks. And that's, you know, that's what I love about what I do in the clinic is, you know, I treat people for a discrete period of time, usually 10, 12, 14 treatments over three to four months. And then they stop coming in because they don't need to. Now there's always some outliers that it is longer than that or some that it's shorter than that, but that's, that's kind of the range. And, and that's, that's, I think the essence. And, and I hope that, um, that was clear to you in the book, um, is that really if you're targeting the fascial tissue and thinking about it is a, as a system that's connecting one muscle to another muscle, to another muscle, to the nervous system and so on, um, that your therapeutic interventions are stimulating a natural cellular process, but you're stimulating it in the area that provides growth and support rather than deterioration. And that's, that's I think, the, the, the biggest message that, that I'm trying to get through uh, in the, the medical community is that the mechanisms of deterioration, which any orthopedic surgeon can tell you about, are identical to the mechanisms of restoration. It just depends on the mechanical input. You know, one of the most, uh, if, I, if I have a knee joint that's wonky, and so let's just say that, let's just say for whatever reason, when, and I don't, maybe I'm not even aware of this, but when I go up and down stairs, you know, my right knee, I come down a little harder on the outside of the leg than the inside of the leg. Well, over a period of years, my connective tissue system is going to modify itself to put up with the fact that I'm not using my body as balanced as I could. And that's going to change things. And that could lead to a deteriorating condition that might need a knee replacement. But it's the same cellular processes that build and support that also take away and allow things to break down. And by the way, the coolest thing I ever realized was when I was in Germany and I saw lots of spiral staircases and I realized the brilliance of a spiral staircase is when you're going up and when you're going down, the force that you're putting through your glutes, through your knee and through your ankle is different with every step you take as opposed to going up a vertical stairs. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Place all your staircases with spiral staircases. If you want better fascia. <laughs> <laughs> That's the takeaway. You're doing something right in Germany. 
Uh, that actually leads mm-hmm. well into my next topic that I'd like to transition to. So a large part of my audience is sure. the CT population. And I have a few uh, mechanisms. Uh, what population? The CP, cerebral palsy. Um, okay. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I have had a few guests on where we've talked about fascia and how it relates to CP. And I'll give a brief uh, explanation of kind of what I've learned and then hear your thoughts. And I have a few uh, questions from the book that I think we can apply to the mechanism of CP. So growing up, Mm -hmm. there was the typical stretching, the spastic muscles, the muscles that seem to be tight and overactive, um, stretch them for long periods of time. Also casting and immobilizing those areas. And now that I've gotten into the fascia work, it is becoming apparent with without any um, true evidence from any studies that the fascial system is essentially weak. And especially in the core, there is not enough tension in Mm -hmm. a biotensegrity model um, that is holding the system together and the spasticity is a result of trying to aid in that lack of tension and compression. So some of the areas I've been exploring is fibroblast stimulation, um, the cell that is responsible for Mm. um, the rebuilding and strengthening of connective tissue. So a few ways is with... Mm -hmm. How uh, How are you? Well... Um, Mariana Barreto and a few others that were at the Congress, they use very light um, massage, especially in um, the Mm -hmm. abdomen and core region to stimulate these. And what I've found that I'm really targeting my approach to is uh, systematic strength training that we know strength training can stimulate the fibroblasts and it's never been this approach has never been taken with the CP population, but I've found incredible results with myself. So now what my Mm -hmm. next step is, is really putting together evidence for why this works. And so I can explain to clients and to the CP population Mm -hmm. that there is a reason why this will work. Yeah. Also, that's fantastic. And if I can uh, make a recommendation, it's something I wish I had done uh, for the last 10 years that I've been at UPMC is, you know, if you have the time, if you can come up with a way to systematize it, document what you're doing and what the results are, Mm -hmm. because that's a tremendous amount of real-time data. And I, I, often wished I had done a more thorough job of doing that with everybody I've treated in the last 10 years, because that would have given me an interesting data set to work with. So pass that on. Um, we also know besides the, the fibroblast also, uh, weight conditioning builds stronger bones, right? Uh, mm-hmm. which I imagine does that, does that enter into the CP world at all or no? Uh, I haven't explored that topic much, but I'm sure that, most people with CP have bone mineral density problems. Um, so that, yeah, that's another, another addition, uh, not exactly what I've been 
targeting with it, but another positive outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're working solely with exercise based interventions, if I understand you correctly. Yes, I would call myself what I'm, um, my goal is to really become a strength coach for the CP population. That's fantastic, man. That, that is fantastic. I, I haven't had really any experience with that population, so I can't speak to it uh, personally or clinically. But um, what? how do you see um, what's happening in the fascial system when you're doing what's your innervation? What's, what's your hypothesis about why you're getting the results that you do? So my hypothesis is... Well, going back to the previous treatments is that those spastic muscles are compensating for a lack of tension in the rest of the body and stretching them, especially mm -hmm. long bouts of static stretching is, if anything, um, making symptoms worse. And what needs to be targeted yeah. is mm -hmm. um, the biotensegrity approach, which I've gone into in the last few episodes. Um, so specifically integrating the core and especially eccentric exercises, uh, that's what has okay. really worked well with the CP population because you get the increase in load under, under tension, um, for the fibroblast stimulation, bone mineral density and whatnot. And you also get the lengthening through stretch which, um, or excuse me, strengthening through stretch in the eccentric, the lowering of the weights, which I have found to have long lasting benefits, uh, much more than the static stretching because the nervous system recognizes the load and that limb and that system can feel safe, um, when using heavy weight, well, relatively heavy weight to, um, load yeah. under stretch. Yeah. And if you're, if you're doing, uh, a, a static stretch continuously under load, there's a certain point where the muscle spindles will actually cause a greater contraction. Just like if you're carrying a suitcase for a long distance, you're, you're, you will actually increase, increase the contractility so that you can continue to function while under that load. So I think what you're doing is absolutely spot on. Thank you. Uh, Follow-up question I have is there's a, a, a portion in the book where you talk about um, proper mechanical stimulation for collagen growth and how there are, when people age often, the collagen can grow kind of like mm -hmm. weeds and in very random formations, but in healthy fascia, mm -hmm. it can grow like a proper garden. And I was wondering, I, I assume that because of the disruption in the nervous system and um, how the fascia responds to that in the population with CP, that the fascia would be more like those weeds and kind of all over the place. So mm -hmm. a few things that have come to mind are cold therapy and vibration for um, 
helping to mm -hmm. put that, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, fascia back into order, um, into that proper garden. Um, I was wondering if you could touch on okay. those two things. The I know it's a, a heavy loaded topic, but the cold and the vibration. No, I'm glad I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked because I'd like to I'd like to refine that a little bit. And I'm thinking of the I know exactly the illustration that you're talking about. I think it's in chapter eight, where I have an old person sitting there watching TV and a young person skipping rope. Um, so when we age, we do lose some of the water content in our fascia and it does get a little drier, uh, a little stiffer. Uh, however, um, the disorganization is less age dependent and much more mobility dependent. So I think if you go back to chapter one, there's a wonderful photograph of the collagen network healthy and then after it was immobilized for three weeks. Uh, we'll say right. it's maybe figure 14. And you were talking about how things get casted and immobilized uh, for CP people, which was the thing I would certainly not recommend for anything unless there was a danger of a break because of an instability. But um, it's the regular movement that stimulates that healthy pattern and gets us less weedy in our garden and particularly spring-like movements like jumping rope or skipping. Skipping is one of the best things you can do for your fascia. Though I think if we had dozens of people skipping down the street, it would be it would be kind of amusing. Also, it's really hard to skip and not smile. Uh, try to skip and frown, you can't do it. But, uh, but it's really the mobility uh, that is crucial to rebuilding that. And unfortunately, what tends to happen when we get older and we become somewhat less mobile is we sort of become in a, a self-fulfilling prophecy thing there where, oh, my ankle hurts, so I'm going to shuffle my feet, but now my knee kind of hurts, so I'm going to stiffen my hip and on and on and on. And we lose that natural fluidity as we age, but we don't need to. Yes, we're not going to be able to do in our 60s what we did in our 20s necessarily, but I, I think we can age in a much more robust way uh, than sometimes I think we're been led to think that we can, but crucial to that is use it or lose it um, is a biological reality. And to, to uh, piggyback on the other thing that you mentioned, um, if I'm looking to stimulate uh, fascia, uh, I'm going to use heat rather than cold. Uh, fascia seems to respond better to heat than cold, but you may you, you may have some other thoughts about that. And you know, every few years, the should we use heat? Should we use cold? Should we use heat? Should we use cold? Uh, the the ideas and, and the opinions seem to change, uh, but in in my experience, the the heat always seems to be better. Mm -hmm. The question is, how penetrating does it get? Because uh, the deepest layers, it may not be penetrating enough, but what it may be doing is actually loosening the superficial layers, which we know have fibers that go all the way down into the deepest layers. So that can be a good thing. Um, how about vibration? Oh, you wait, touched on this. Ask you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, Do, you know, I forget I was going to ask you a question, though. But... You're looking... Um, 
So I guess my question, if you don't mind, Charlie, is so you were talking about applying cold. Are you trying to get more of a contraction or are you trying to get more of an expansion in, in, a, in, a, in a more mobility when you apply cold? Um, well, my thought process is that since the heating fascia will decrease the viscosity of the fascia, it will make it mm -hmm. more of a fluid mm -hmm. and more movable pretty much right um but mm -hmm. since the the fascia in the anecdotal evidence in the fascia with people with cp is that it is kind of too movable and too loose so right. cooling it and yeah. i've personally um really gotten big into the ice baths and no, um, that... polar plunges i was just gonna ask about ice baths yeah yeah so what i've what has worked well for me is um, something like an ice bath before exercise, because my hypothesis is that it will improve the sliding and gliding for people with CP, even though it is kind of counterintuitive, but breaking down the mechanism of viscosity. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's, that's brilliant thinking, Charlie, because as soon as, as soon as I was talking about heat, I went, wait a minute, we have two very different goals here. And that's, that's an important thing for everybody to realize is that, you know, it gets back into that both and principle that I write about, um, you know, sometimes one application that works for the general population doesn't work so well for a specific population. So, so kudos to you. Do you think those cryo tanks would do the same thing? Have you ever tried the cryo tanks? I think it could, I've never tried them. Um, I've heard very mixed results mm -hmm. in general population, but I think that would definitely be uh -huh. a great idea to explore. Uh, and on your point, it's it's been an interesting journey with the fascia because most of what people are looking at is the release of fascia and why heat will work um, for something like low back pain. Mm -hmm. And um, if mm -hmm. this anecdotal evidence on CP is accurate, which it seems to be, then it's really going to be taking um, the polar opposite approach to rebuilding and strengthening the fascia. Yeah, a literal, a literal polar opposite yes. approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's that's that that's fantastic. That's really fantastic because very few people come to me and say, "Hey, could you make me stiffer?" Right. You know, I'm 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 the unstiffer. Um, so kudos to you. But you were you were starting to ask me about vibration. Yes. So mm -hmm. with the struggle with contraction relaxation cycles in the CP population, mm -hmm. I've started to explore um, the crimp formation and how vibration yeah. could have an impact on this. I was wondering if you could touch on that. Um, my understanding is that there are uh, vibratory tools are wonderful things. And again, like everything else, uh, one level of vibration uh, does not fit all. And I think where you are in the body makes a difference too. So for example, the IT band is meant to support, not to be loose. And the vibration you might use on a thicker fascia like that uh, versus say something in the bicep or something in the quadriceps could be different. Um, 
what's curious to me is I don't really see anything out there that says, well, you know, this is the frequency. I don't know that anybody's really gotten that level of depth to say, well, you know, a, a vibration between this many hertz and that many hertz uh, is best for stimulating fibroblasts or best for stimulating this process. Um, I think what feels right to the person is probably the way to go with that. And it may change uh, in the body. In general, my understanding uh, is that lower frequency oscillations seem to do better for fascia than higher frequency oscillations. And that comes from a colleague of mine named Christopher Gordon, who builds vibratory tools and uh, does research on them. Uh, he's in Germany. And that's been my understanding from him. And he's the one who seems to be spending the most time on that. Mm. But what those specific frequencies are, I'm, I'm not sure. Interesting. And from the little that I've looked into it, the studies going on with CP seem to have similar um, conclusions. And that is just full body stimulation. Cool. So um, not any targeted approach, but just standing on vibration pads. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because then you're constantly having to adjust how you're stabilizing. Right, exactly. Cool. So you're doing some great work, Charlie. This is this has been great. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know anything <laughs> about this. Yeah. Uh, the next question I have for you is something I heard over and over in Montreal at the Congress, and that it is foam rolling and tissue massage should not hurt and you should not be wincing. Um, and my approach that I've always heard growing up is you want to take that lacrosse ball and just feel as much pain as you can. And now that's really mm -hmm. in the strength and conditioning world. Um, but getting into the massage yeah. therapist, it's a very different approach. Agreed. Um, and even with the Schwarzenegger types, as uh, Robert Schleif would say, um, you know, a lacrosse ball, you, the harder your surface. So in research, they call it a stress transfer medium. So whether you're using a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball or a foam roller, um, the stress transfer medium should allow some room for negotiation. As I often tell my patients use a tennis ball because golf balls have no mercy. Golf balls do not care about your feelings, but you can negotiate with a tennis ball and find just that right level of, okay, that's, you know, um, I, I have a patient who calls it gloriously uncomfortable. You know, it's like, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like, Ooh, great, but it feels necessary. It feels like it's doing something productive and I can sink into it a little bit without tightening up somewhere else. So yes, you that no pain, no gain. Uh, we don't believe that. We don't believe that at all. And even within different parts of your body, for example, the kind of roller you might use on the lateral part of your leg may not be the same kind of roller you would want to use on the inside of your leg because they're, they're very different tissues. They're very different tissues. So yes, softer is better conforming. Like when I, when I'm teaching manual therapy to people, um, I talk about 
letting your hand conform to the terrain of what's underneath them rather than imposing uh, the surface of your hand into the surface of their body. And it's the same thing with using a roller or some kind of ball. You need something that will kind of conform to you. And then you and your uh, self-massage tool can have a better conversation. That makes perfect sense. So that leads me into uh, my final question, and it's about the name of the podcast, okay. uh, Movement Fluidity, and I would love to hear what that means to you and how you think that can be improved. Uh, when I hear the words movement fluidity, it makes me think of poise and grace. Uh, it makes me think of simple everyday movements that we can do with a little bit of style. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the best ways that we can engender that is to find a practice, whatever it is. Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's qigong. Uh, maybe... It's uh, uh, the, the breathing practices that uh, Max Strom is, is one of the guys that, that I learned a lot of breathing practices from. He has a great little app for that, um, where you can be softer, you can be slower, and you can be thinking about, or rather I shouldn't say thinking, you can be feeling what's going on in your body while you're doing what you're doing, as opposed to something a little more goal-oriented, like running or powerlifting or things like that, where we're having metrics. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think goals are good. I have a 79-year-old I'm working with now. He's got a problem with his shortened leg because of an accident. And once he got his shoe lifts, what did he do? He went out to take a walk around the reservoir, which is about a half a mile around, and uh, walked with his cane for one revolution, and then walked without his cane for another revolution in his new shoe insert so he can begin to reorganize his body that way. God love him. Um, but something slower, more mindful, where we're focusing on the quality of what we're doing and what we're feeling in our body while we're doing it, rather than a goal-oriented I bench press this much this week. I want to bench press that much next week because I have a strength goal. Uh, that's the thing I think we need to do. And everybody's a little bit different. Uh, even, even some of the softer martial arts can engender this same kind of proprioceptive and interoceptive effect. And that's my suggestion. And then you carry that into everything else that you do in your life. Mm -hmm. That That is one of the best answers I've ever heard. And that is uh, spot on from wow, my experience. <laughs> Mm -hmm. well thank you so much yeah, is there anything your, else love your, love your yeah uh is there anything else no, uh, I, think that's a good place. I think that's a good place to end it um and uh just as a reminder i will uh when we're done i will get you those discount codes you can put them in the show notes and if people are interested in the book they can go check it out and get a nice little christmas discount awesome appreciate that and i'll leave a link to the body talk podcast and your Instagram and how people can find you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank I'll have you, to reciprocate. I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about your stuff too. You're welcome, Charlie. Bye. Appreciate it.